Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Antifada. I am Sean KB, and I'm here with Andy, a little under the weather, but uh, he's going to be co-hosting with me today. And we are proud to have on the podcast, at long last, a man uh, who you've all, you all know and love, a provocateur. Um, I wouldn't say a contrarian, because that's kind of a slur, uh, but a man who's not, uh, he's not afraid to get his feet wet, let's just say. A man who calls himself the last Marxist, uh, the co-founder of Platypus Affiliated Society, and professor of art, is that right, at University of Chicago? Uh, a school of the Art Institute of Chicago and Art History Theory and Criticism. All right, so I wasn't even close, but these are your credentials, and uh, welcome to the Antifada. Thanks for being with us today. Cool, thanks for having me. The reason uh, for having you on, despite the, um, you know, the obvious, which is that you always have interesting and provocative things to say, is that you have a new book out, a collection of essays from uh, Sublation um, booksellers uh, called The Death of the Millennial Left, Interventions 2006 to 2022. And uh, we wanted to dive into, dip into those interventions and kind of tease out some of the issues. But we especially want to talk about this thesis of the death of the millennial left. Uh, very provocative, very interesting. What do you mean by that? How is it that a millennial left came into being and how is it that it died? And where does a Gen Xer get off talking to <laughs> us about the millennial left? Well, you know, Gen X didn't really have its own left, um, I, in my view, anyway. I feel like my generation is a little bit of a lost generation. We were under the shadow of the 60s new left, and was, you know, we were really derivative of them. Um, you know, in part because, you know, the 80s were not a great time for leftism. Um, but I do think that like in the sixties and seventies with the millennials, um, there was a kind of something of an opportunity for reconstituting the left, I thought. And that's what sort of brought me out of retirement. So basically I had retired from the left in the nineties and not entirely, but pretty much keep, kept my distance. You know, I was around marginally with Adolf Reed, a mentor of mine, his Labor Party project, but I was really unenthusiastic about it and he kind of resented me for that. And, um, you know, so the, with the millennials, you know, with the anti-war movement, you know, I was a young professor, you know, in my late thirties and I saw, you know, reaching back historically a, an attempt at a new start. Um, and so, you know, now the left is a funny concept, especially the way I use it. I do use it as like a metaphysical concept. So capital L left. So it's not like a group of people. Um, it's an idea, if you will. Um, and, you know, a kind of a, a, a principle or a tendency, uh, you know, a kind of a historical kind of phenomenon. And, um, you know, so I took the millennial left seriously in terms of their attempt to reestablish a socialist politics. And the death of that for me is the abandonment of that impulse, um, which I associate with the DSA turn, the democratic socialists of America turn, um, that happened around the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 and also happened in response to Trump. Mm. Right. And so, you know, I feel like we're like five or six years on now in 2023 from what I, you know, my kind of declaration that the millennial left was dead. Now, okay, so Platypus has this kind of infamous slogan, the left is dead. Mm. Long live the left, but the left is dead. You know, so again, the, the king is dead, long live the king. The king is not just like a person, right? It's like an embodiment of something. Mm. And, um, you know, it's meant to be provocative, it is, but it's also meant to explicitly articulate something that everybody knows, right? I think that Adolf, you know, says, and others say this, there are leftists, but there is no left, mm. right? And what's meant by that, and also in my mind, you know, there's no socialist politics, really. There are sort of individual people who are more or less socialistic in their views, um, but there isn't like a kind of independently constituted socialist politics per se. Right. And, and, you know, 
what exactly that would look like is not entirely clear. But again, it's a, it's a kind of a, an impulse and aspiration. And I do think the aspiration was abandoned around Bernie. I do. You know, I, uh, one more thing about this sort of generational question is that uh-huh. you know, I, I came up understanding the left and revolutionary politics through anarchism in the 2000s, which you, you probably remember was, was a, a pretty large current. You know, basically you had like Trotskyists and Stalinists, and then you had anarchists, so the sure. black bloc movement. And I, I thought that was a much more potent and much more you know attractive to me for personal reasons. But I thought even in a way it was a more mature position because it was sort of forward looking in some ways. But it was also uh-huh. it was also tailing like the radical vanguard of the Gen X of like the punk movement uh, of the eighties and nineties. Eighties, nineties, yeah, yeah. That was something that was in the in the air for me. I mean, I you know so I formulated some like you know founding statements for Platypus. So we kind of throw the 80s and 90s into the basket of the post-political left. Mm-hmm, right? And I associate that with anarchism for sure. And um, no, it's a funny thing. So on the one hand, you know, I am a Marxist and I'm even a Leninist. And I do have a Trotskyist background. But, and so I have my animus with respect to anarchism, I do. Um, also with respect to left communism, mm. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit, Sean, because yeah. I watched your interview with Gene Bajalan. Oh, you recent- did? Yeah, of course I did. Yeah, Excellent. Yeah. Thanks. Because I know Gene. And so, um, you know, uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, I also think that a lot of what the task of the left is, in fact, would be classified by most people as anarchism. Hmm. Right. So it would be, you know, independent, civil, social action, you know, really n- nothing to do with the state or state policies or laws or changing the law, right? It would really be about organizing people at the level of, you know, so-called civil society. Mm. Um, and because I do think that that's really what needs to happen now and first before we can talk about, like, politics, right? And so... Uh, you know, so I've been involved in Platypus. I also have a side project, which is the Campaign for a Socialist Party. And that's very kind of grassroots, low-level, almost underground-y mm. in, its, in its activity. And, you know, and it's very much not ideological. Mm. It's not about, you know, like raising a, a flag, an ideological flag or a pole of attraction. You know, this, this shit on the left that... that the, the orgs, the sectarian groups do, you know, they intervene, right? So my interventions in this book are not interventions like that. You know, it's more like interventions like a doctor Mm. in the emergency room, Mm. like the, you know, the millennial left is on the gurney dying. And, you know, you try this and you try that various interventions, right? That's that's how I conceived of that. Well, and, although I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's and I think it's pretty powerful throughout the book because it's not broken up chronologically per se, but there right. you know there is a, a movement in there, an arc, an arc, yeah. And um, through the course of this, um, you're intervening at these very important points, whether it's on the the black question in the United States, whether yeah. it's um, the Arab Spring and the global war on terror, whether it's um, Obama, whether it's the crisis of 2008, or especially too, uh, of course, with the rise of Donald Trump and the Trump question, right? These are all moments where it seems to me that you're trying to get at sort of the root of the way that the left is thinking, um, muddled, <laughs> muddled thoughts about these things, unable to act. And I, I think that like what's pretty powerful too is the way that um, you're able to not just critique the new left and what you, I think, correctly recognize the millennial left as being, which is the remnant of the remnant of the new left that comes out of the 80s that kind of takes on this, this dying boomer politics and, and runs with it in an era when it's not, um, it's not adequate to the moment. But you're, you're not content to do that. You're also, uh, you critique the old left as well because oh, yeah. this is, as, as, as a politics inadequate to the moment continues to be the, uh, the coffin that we're all in right now, it seems like a lot of people want to go back to the 1930s and the popular yep. front and laborism and workerism of that time. And you say that actually this was part of the beginning of the death, the death of, of the left. American yeah. left. Yeah, Stalinism, yeah. it's real. I mean, again, you know, that will be a controversial term, um, but, you know, and this is where I would be sympathetic to 
sympathetic to, but also, you know, I have my antipathy is based on sympathy with respect to the left comms mm. and left communism that emerges in the 20s and 30s, you know, as a kind of a parallel to, um, you know, the lodestars for me, which are Trotskyism and the Frankfurt School, you know, which are both like 30s phenomena. Um, I should say also, so there's going to be a second volume of my writings that's going to follow this one. So this one is my sort of engaged, like current events, like political writings. And then I also did a, a great deal more writing on basically Marxist theory, right? And, and history and historical Marxism. And that's going to be called Marxism and Politics. And it's really conceived of as a second volume to this book. So that the two books will have, they're both, the covers of the books will line up because it's based on like a painting of a friend of mine. Um, and so we divided the painting into two halves for the two, two books. And so um, that's where I'm going to get into that s stuff. So more, we can consider right? this the first part of a two-part episode with Chris Gutrone when the you next volume comes out. Yeah, we'd love to. Usually you yeah, say you that at the end, but we'll say that towards the beginning this time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Cool. But, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's one of these things where, you know, again, I thought there was an opportunity to begin again, you know, make a new start, really reconsider everything. You know, I, I do feel like the advantage of realizing that the left is dead is that all bets are off. And this is like a metaphor that I used in my article, the millennial left is dead in the book where, you know, I use like the sort of, you know, card playing, you know, uh, poker game kind of um, metaphor where I feel like, you know, we don't have to stand on any of the preceding generation's gambles, right? Like, they, they gambled this way and that way, they tried this and that. We don't have to back up those bets now, right? It's done. And so the problem, as I saw it, was that the millennial left, like, shied away from making their own gamble, in, in favor of, like, repeating the gambles of the past. Mm. And it's like, you know, it didn't work back then. Why do you think it's going to work now, right? So it's like, you know, I don't know what, gambling addiction? Like, it's like, one more round and I'll win this time. No. Yeah. Right? <laughs> this is kind of, I think, where your project and our project uh, converges a bit because we've been saying since the beginning of this podcast like five years ago, uh, not that the left is dead, long live the left per se, although we were kind of gesturing in that direction because we posited that um, new conditions, uh, political and economic conditions, uh, a new regime of accumulation, which we were calling um, arising over the last, since the 2008 crisis, would right. lead to the necessity for there to be a novel sort of politics and a novel uh, set of organizational principles that come out of that thing. And, of course, it's difficult, and you tease this out in your book, it's difficult, of course, to predict. Uh, it's very difficult to even know what phase of history you're living in as you go through it. One of the things that you said the millennial left failed at, but especially the 1960s new left generation mm -hmm. failed at and triumphantly failed at, was there was all this push again in the 1960s and uh, 1970s. Mm -hmm. to point to the limitations of and the necessity to go beyond the uh, Fordist compromise. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. But because this was seen as, of course, uh, you know, this, uh, this, this great uh, height that had to be climbed, they were storming heaven, they were bringing down the uh, Fordist consensus, mm -hmm. they were trying to create a politics that went against the grain. But then as it turns out with uh, Carter and Reagan, these same people who are calling for the destruction of big labor, <laughs> the destruction of the, of the yep. class compromise, all of a sudden were left completely out to sea and actually engaging in a rearguard struggle to defend those exact institutions that were being attacked by the right in this instance and weren't able to formulate a politics, again, adequate to confronting that and pushing these contradictions forward. So I thought that That's that... Right. I, I think that's that's very important for us because I feel like we're in that exact same moment right now. We are. Um, I mean, I would say that, you know, the new left and the new right are parallel phenomena. And you can't really separate them, meaning they feed off each other. And, you know, I would say in the most sort of uh, evil intentioned way, I guess, the new left got what it, want, what it wanted, you know, with neoliberalism. Mm. They, and, you know, and of course, this is again, you know, I'll, I'll mention Adolf Reed again, 
that, um, you know, this is what he taught me is that, uh, you know, and others also like David Harvey, but even my other mentor, Moish Postone, you know, that the left participated in creating the new form of capitalism and that the left does do that, right? It did that in the 30s and the 40s, you know, the old left, and then it did it now, uh, more recently in the last 50 years. And of course, we're going to see that happening yet again as the millennial left, like, becomes the managers of capitalism the vanguard of bidenomics or trumponomics sure. which are seeming to, yeah, seeming to be a right. bipartisan in other words, are they really all that different exactly right in other words like what we have to uh you know try to keep alert to is the new consensus that's going to come you know the, in other words the basis of the disagreement between the the left the democrats the capitalist left and the capitalist right the republicans because um, they're going to agree on more than they disagree on, as always. And, um, you know, so now in terms of, like, new forms of organizing, right, so defending the old forms as they went under, um, there was a missed opportunity to find, I mean, and the 60s New Left did have this moment, but I feel like it was kind of like early 60s, mid-60s, like the SDS, ERAP, you know, they were like, okay, what is the working class on the ground? What is their life really about? What does production look like now? Mm-hmm. What does society look like now? And again, they kind of shied away from it in favor of, you know, again, being uncharitable, like third worldism, you know, like national liberation struggles, this kind of thing, you know, the black power turn, you know, as opposed to really dealing with the fact of like, okay, what is, what is, the racial integration of the working class say about labor now in the sixties. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like Bayard Rustin, you know, who's, who's like, I don't know, vilified as some kind of right wing social Democrat, you know, of the time, which, you know, I guess he was, but still he was like trying to get at something that then the old, the new left kind of shied away from. And I'm not sure if the millennials ever kind of went there, mm. you know, not entirely, you know, they so new forms of organizing, right? So, uh, you know, I mean, I am, this is where I am more like a left com. I'm like, you know, existing organized labor is not, right? It's not only not going to be a constituency of socialist politics, it's not even going to really be a labor movement, right? It Because it just is totally part of this form of capitalism now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, but there is, you know, the DSA's rank and file strategy, which means becoming labor bureaucrats, you know, and it's like, okay, no imagination whatsoever, like no curiosity about like the way the working class actually is Mm. living, (laughs) you know? I mean, I don't know. It's kind of stunning. Well, the, the um, we we came to a realization, uh, Matt Crispin and I, we did a big episode that I worked on for a really long time. Because I don't know if you know this, but I'm a rank and file carpenter. So these things aren't mm-hmm. um, particularly abstract mm-hmm. to me. And I've mm-hmm. had the fortune of not viewing the working class as like an instrument to be acted upon or as right. like a social category to be managed. <laughs> but instead... Right. Uh, managed to be part of that whole thing. Uh, we came, I came to a real breakthrough when I, around the time of uh, Striketober, when it became mm-hmm. clear that the current structures, the current class compromise, let's call it, the current constellation of uh, class organizations such as they exist under the National Labor Relations Act and Taft-Hartley, it's, oh, yeah. it's not a matter of will and it's not a matter of representation that these organizations cannot become more than what they are. And it's not simply that they are part and parcel of uh, the Democratic Party, which is to right. say part and parcel of like a large class fraction, you know, within the United States. Um, mm-hmm. It's that the it's, it's not even that these can that the labor movement such as it is can even be like overcome on its own terms. And the way right. that I came to this was um, was through the distinction between rights and freedom. You know, people are always mm-hmm. talking about labor rights. Uh, people are talking about. Uh, they had no right to fire me. We have the right to strike. We have the right to withhold our labor. And rights are all well and good. And we'll talk about republicanism in this in this episode, too, because I think yeah, you yeah. speak uh, very eloquently on that uh, at the, at the yeah. end of your book. But, like, mm-hmm. 
There is something to be said for this vision of freedom, this Hegelian slash Marxist conception of like yep. of freedom to uh, to self realize uh, in an yep. individual and collective capacity. And I think right. you, by grounding a lot of your essays back in this conception of freedom, I think it helps to change the conversation a bit, not falling back on various different bourgeois laws, not falling back upon the constitution right. or even the norms, you know, that, right. that, uh, that, uh, exist in say labor relations in this country, but instead looking past that, looking for a way to galvanize people about a conception of what could be talk a little mm -hmm. bit about freedom and how you, you try to kind of lay out a, a conception of freedom in your, in your book, in your intervention. Right. So this is much more of a, like, um, you get a taste of it in this, in this volume, you know, I put enough of it in there so that, you know, you could have a sense of where I'm coming from, but it's something that, you know, is going to be more fleshed out in the theoretical writings. Um, because, you know, again, yeah, this Hegelian Marxist notion of freedom, meaning, you know, not interests in society as constituted, but the transformation of society, right? And, um, you know, there are different elements to that. So, you know, the working class, I mean, the Marxist, the old Marxist approach to the working class was strategic, right? It's not like ontological, mm. you know, because if you ontologize the working class, you're actually doing bourgeois ideology. Right. I mean, this is going to, you know, this is like into, uh, I don't know what, Lukács, Maoism, I don't know what. You know, our, like our, listeners, our listeners are good, are good with, on that front. I think they can, they can roll with right. it. They know what, what the point is there, right? And so it's kind of like, okay, so strategic orientation towards the working class in terms of what needs to happen to change society. And that conception of freedom, like social freedom, right? And I feel like, you know, Obviously, we're under a hundred years of Orwellian, weird, double think, double speak on the left. Mm -hmm. You know, all sorts of crazy Stalinism, but also everything in the wake of Stalinism. The Trotskyists do this too. The anarchists do it too. The leftcons do it too. And you know, where it's kind of like individual liberty versus like collective social freedom, and then collective social freedom is like nationalistic, mm -hmm. and you know, all this kind of crap. And so, you know, but what about the fact that, you know, we live in a society? <laughs> the Joker. You said it. You said the words. <laughs> yeah, right. We live in a society and it's a global society. And how are we going to transform that? You know, or at least begin, you know, building the possibility of that. Um, and that's where, you know, I think that there is a shying away you know, I talk about this in the in the prologue to my book. I have paths to Marxism, where I talk about my you know education under the Spartacist League and under Adolf Reed and under Moish Postone, and also my in a sense self education reading Adorno in the Frankfurt School. And you know, they 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 did like even people who had a great deal of insight. They're like freedoms of right wing concept. Mm. You know, and and, you know, you have to ask freedom for who to do what? And I was like, yeah, but what about the freedom of us collectively as a society to transform social relations? You know, like, what about that? You know, and and then it gets really weird. Right. Because, you know, my my old professor Moish is like, well, you need the new social movements, you know, almost like a version of like a Raya Dinovskaya. Mm like new new forces new subjects kind of thing and it's like yeah that's a bit again for, to my mind that's a little too hegelian that's a little bit too like yeah but bourgeois society is doing that already capitalism is doing that already so that's the tricky part is that look capitalism is freedom and it's unfreedom mm -hmm. capitalism is freedom and the way i talk about it you know i teach marxism academically you know Capitalism is more revolutionary than we could ever be. I remember right? a, um, a Grundrisse reading group we had uh, with, um, I guess I could say his name, with uh, Paul Maddock Jr. Uh, sure. From yeah, the yeah. Show. And uh, there was a huge uh, blow up in the whole group because there was the um, competing contentions, which is that capitalism um, completes the enslavement of women under capitalism and then there was the argument yeah. that it is actually only under capitalist social relations uh that the gender question can even be can even arise as a question of society as a question of freedom and women can gain uh 
uh, at least a one-sided, one-sided yeah. freedom uh, to control their lives to the extent that anybody can under capitalism. So this is very contentious, you know, and when you, yeah, towards the, the end of your um, essay, especially when you're uh, talking about the, not just freedom, but also the birth, our birthright of American freedom, uh, post-American yeah. revolution, you know, this yeah. shot heard around the world, um, which we're still living the consequences of. Um, the contention that capitalism is also freedom as a, in addition to being unfreedom, or it's an incomplete freedom, it gives, us a, the, it gives us the freedom to build the capacity for a greater freedom, has somehow become contentious. Um, and is that, a, is that the new left? Is that a hangover from the new left? Uh, where it's do you- super, yeah, super obscure now, and I think the new left struggled with that one. And, um, you know, you get like postmodernism also cracks its head against this kind of thing. You know, where you get like Foucault, a kind of pseudo Nietzschean, kind of like every liberation is a new discipline and this kind of thing. Like, you know, decidedly undialectical ways of approaching these things. So, one of the ways that I think about this um, is bourgeois society and capitalism, right? So, on something like, you know, the gender question, right? So, um, one of the things that's a kind of a marker for me is like julia mitchell has an essay from the 60s women the longest revolution mm -hmm. there was a, a time in the 60s when they were very young people and they were really trying to reconstruct marxism for themselves and realizing that it was this whole open world and you know again it's bourgeois society raises the question of freedom and then capitalism gives us a kind of distorted version of that. Mm. And we're still living, you know, to use like Marx's language, you know, the contradiction of bourgeois social relations and industrial forces of production. And, you know, what that means is that the impulse to freedom is on both sides and neither side, right? So it's not like, okay, we're just doing accelerationist, fully automated luxury communism. Tech That's a flashback, yeah. Right? We're not doing that, and we're also not doing this kind of conservative reactionary, petty bourgeois, like, you know, which, you know, again, Marxists, this is where they cast anarchism as, like, you know, small-scale production returning to the local community, you know, um, although that's going to be a natural impulse as well mm. to restore bourgeois society. Um, at that level, um, and and really at like an anthropological level, so you have people like David Braber and whatever, like running around, like finding, like, okay, how far back does freedom go? Mm -hmm. You know, and basically, but it's still a very bourgeois conception of freedom mm -hmm. that they have, which you know is nice, you know, but, but what's cute about it or not so cute about it is the transhistoricism of it, where it's kind of like, yeah, you know, this is an accomplishment of history. And we're still living with that. And we're still living with the implications of it. So we're still working through it, we might say. And we're not going to be done working through it until we've overcome it. And so the, the tricky thing about the struggle for socialism and why the struggle for socialism can turn into like the women's question and the black question and the national question and all this stuff is that the struggle for socialism is bourgeois. It is bourgeois. You know, it comes out of radical bourgeois. I mean, this is my response to leftcom mm. type stuff. You know, it's like, well, the Russian Revolution was a bourgeois revolution. Well, yeah, but you know what? That's not because it was a peasant country. A revolution in the United States is going to be a bourgeois revolution too. Mm. Well, do you think it's going to be motivated by bourgeois values? It's going to be life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, liberty, equality, fraternity. It's going to be that. That's what's going to motivate people. It's not going to be, you know, some obscure Marxist utopian glimpse of some potential, right? Um, so, it's going to, yeah. So in 18th Premier, when, when Marx sort of distinguishes communism from social democracy, um, mm -hmm. do you think he's got that wrong? Do you think that was too idealistic of him or something? No, no, no. I mean, I think, no, I'm like very Marx, very Marx. But I feel like it's easy to misread Marx. Marx can be blindingly clear and therefore unclear, right? So it's the, um, you know, this is something that I talked about in my private conversations with Moish. He would hang a lot on this, Moish Bostone. The poetry of the past, the poetry of the future, right? And so the bourgeois revolutions of, let's just say, the American Revolution and the French Revolution 
got themselves drunk on like uh, images of uh, ancient Rome, right? The Roman Republic, you know, and before that, like uh, the English Civil War, you know, and the Dutch Revolt, like got itself drunk on like radical apostolic Christianity, like Protestantism, like we're, we're, we're going to restore the Christian community. Um, and, you know, we, we can't allow ourselves to do that, according to Marx. We have to take our poetry from the future. Mm. And yet, <laughs> it's, a, it's a poetry that has yet to be written. Mm. Meaning, we have to recognize the contradiction in the revolution in capitalism. Which is that, on the one hand, it's going to be motivated to restore bourgeois society and bourgeois freedom. And on the other hand, it's tasked with getting beyond it. There's a quote that I picked out uh, from your epilogue in this book, um, and it's um, in America, socialism will arise, if at all, on the basis of a mass desire to save society, not to destroy it. Which I think is really fascinating, because I think it gets at um, something that's maybe an obscure question on the left, and maybe this is the reason why, as you say, the left is dead, but uh, this obscure question is how do you make socialism something that the mass of people want to do and something that's legible to people on a grand enough scale that you have the social forces to push through a social transformation? You can't be anti-American, and that goes for the left around the world, you know? Like, the left around the world, anti-Americanism is really bad because, um, you know, it's, it's kind of dishonest at a certain level. Um, you know, I mean, I know, you know, U.S. imperialism, yeah, I know. But, right, the point is, I think I used the John F. Kennedy speech mm-hmm. in 1960, where he's like, you know, Fidel Castro came to Harlem and Nikita Khrushchev came to New York, and they should come here because this is where it all started. And the Cuban Revolution and the Russian Revolution and the Chinese Revolution. I mean, this is very JFK. You know, he wanted uh, the U.S. to actively fight against the Soviet Union in terms of claiming the revolution, especially around things like the Algerian War for Independence. You know, he wanted the U.S. to champion the revolution and, and outcompete the East on the claim, the authentic claim to, like, look, we're the revolutionaries, right? And, you know, obviously that's Cold War ideology, but there's also something to it, right? I mean, there was Cold War liberalism and Cold War social democracy. Was it hypocrisy? Was it just, like, degeneracy? I mean, sure, there was enough of that. It was also real, right? And there were a lot of ex-Marxists who participated, and there's a reason. I think, you know? I think we, we, which is to say you, might have lost at least half the listeners uh, when you went on the anti-anti-Americanism thing. Uh, right. um, which is interesting. It's good. It's provocative and it's good. And I want to like maybe flesh out a little bit more um, how you think the tradition of republicanism, uh, which is a thoroughly uh, bourgeois mm. creation and invention, invented mm-hmm. in practice, of course, not, right, not right. necessarily in theory, uh, but one that it seems like for 150 years after Marx and Marxists, but more broadly socialists and communists, um, understood as something that must be ultimately fulfilled. Where does republicanism fit into this? And how do we know, since both you and me and Andy are all post-urban ethnic whites from the New York City suburbs (laughs) (laughs) that we're not all just in the end of it talking about freedom and justice and liberty for all. We're not just talking ourselves into becoming Reagan Democrats, which we probably should have been to begin with. And follow-up question, are Jews now permitted into the world of ethnic whites? (laughs) Uh, Depends. (laughs) 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 Right, it's always provisional. I mean, you know, so I'm Irish and Italian. I don't know how white they are, or I am, you know, um, you know, there's always like, you know, the Scaramucci moment where you're just like, is this a white guy? (laughs) No, not really. Um, Or Joe Biden, for that matter. Mm. How white is he, Mm. for Christ's sake? He's our second Um, black president. (laughs) I mean, the way that I put it is, okay, you know, before the death of the left. Okay, so we got Vladimir Lenin writing in 1912 on the results of the American election, right? And that was 
Theodore Roosevelt, Progressive Party, Bull Moose Party versus Taft Republican versus Woodrow Wilson, Democrat versus Eugene Debs, Socialist, right? Mm. And what Lenin says is, in America, freedom is most complete, the most democratic country in the world, and freedom is most complete. And those aren't the same things. Mm. Like, democratic and freedom, not the same thing. So what he meant is, you know, in civil society, America is the most free. And in the politics, it's the most democratic. Okay, so what do we make of the results of the election? He's like, okay, clearly the socialists have broken through and affected things. And, you know, he understood the split in the Republican Party between Theodore Roosevelt and Taft and this progressivism and this fight over progressivism between Theodore Roosevelt and um, Woodrow Wilson to be bound up with the struggle for socialism. Right, it's an epiphenomenon of the struggle for socialism. It's it's there, and you know he also Eugene Debs famously said, you know we just passed the Fourth of July last week, right? The Fourth of July is a socialist holiday, and if Jefferson and Lincoln were alive today, they wouldn't be Democrats or Republicans; they'd be socialists. And he was completely right about that. That's not like just empty rhetoric or propagandistic opportunism it was substantial it's real can i just, you know? I, can I just share a, a fact i learned recently about this and I, I don't think i totally agree that, that they were socialists but i was looking into the origins of the fourth of july and even the democratic oh. party in a, a sense and, and uh the like the sort of pre-political formations that led to like the popularization of the fourth of july mm. were these pro-jacobin social groups in new york who like mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. would mm-hmm. you know out of opposition to federalism like built guillotines and paraded them around in the streets and called Fourth of July like uh, you know the holiday to celebrate this what they saw as this global revolution that started in the United States and had spread to France and, and, spread to France. and when true. Alexander Hamilton came to try to address them they pelted him with stones <laughs> and tomatoes absolutely no I mean I you know I I'm a big fan of Thomas Jefferson I am. And I do think the revolution of 1800, his establishment of the Democratic Republican Party to, to overthrow the, uh, what became the Federalists, and uh, the reestablishment of that party, because the Republican Party that was established out of the split of the Whigs, you know, founded by, like, abolitionists, it's the reestablishment of the old Democratic Republican Party, because they used to call that party for short, the Republican Party. It does get to this question of republicanism. And it's it's not, you know, Thomas Jefferson did not found the Democratic Party. That's Andrew Jackson, and that's a split from, right? So uh, I think that it's not a matter of saying that Jefferson and Lincoln were socialists, right? Even though, you know, you could say Abraham Lincoln appreciated the support of the First International in in a, in a in a very genuine way, and also Thomas Jefferson was in active correspondence with and sympathetic to the Utopian Socialists in the 1820s. Um, you know he was, and so, but it's not a matter of that. It's a matter of if they were alive today, meaning 1900. If if their right. life experience, if the principles that they stood on and the politi- politics that they lived their lives with had been pushed forward in time, it naturally follows that by the early 20th century, they would be in the socialist camp, is the argument. Absolutely. Right? That's right. And, um, you know, but I, I'll just say this also about Jefferson and the Jacobinism. You know, of course, Jefferson's the one who's sympathetic to the French Revolution. And part of what motivates him to run for the presidency in 1800 is because he does see the U.S. lining up with Britain against the French Revolution. And the Alien and Sedition Act, right, which is meant to attack sympathizers with the French Revolution in the United States, you know, John Adams. And so, um, you know, yeah, these things are very much connected. And we also know that, you know, there's a lot of cross-fertilization in the 19th century, um, you know, across the Atlantic. Uh, you know, utopian socialists, British and French utopian socialists. Irish anti-imperialists, uh, abolitionists. Abolitionism is in the same milieu, right? And absolutely, because, uh, right, uh, this, is, this is the same world. 
And so, you know, it's not some kind of homey America, Americana kind of thing. You know, um, that's really not the point. Although I like to joke. So, you know, like Earl Browder infamously mm -hmm. said, socialism is as American as apple pie. And that uh, communism is 21st century Americanism. Was that what it? Yeah. And, you know, of course he was right about that. I mean, of course he was a Stalinist and an opportunist, and this was used to, you know, justify the popular front and support for FDR and progressivism. He's right about that, but I, I like to joke that American pie may not be so American, it might be German. Mm. In other words, it might be an import of the Red 48ers, right? Oh, the Marxists, yeah. right? right. Um, in other words, how American is, is apple pie, mm. right? <laughs> in the end. So, you know, because otherwise it's kind of like, again, we get this kind of post-60s, you know, Vietnam era, Cold War era, anti-Americanism. And, you know, I understand, I do, but no, right? Because it's just not like that. And it's that's a massive concession. It's unfortunately to, not even a good analysis or understanding of imperialism. And I've gotten, well, for sure. I've right. gotten into some trouble saying that uh, anti-Americanism is the anti-imperialism of fools um, because people have been, I guess, given this, um, been handed down from the 60s generation, which fought um, against the Vietnam War and other various imperial endeavors. But more importantly, I think, saw themselves as like the uh, imperial metropole version of the decolonial struggles uh, that right. were taking place around the world. Right. During that time, those struggles are completed, let's say, and we now have a whole different type of apparatus, imperial apparatus right now, of which, of course, the Amer America is the central node of that. And we see that happening in the wars in, uh, in East uh, Europe right now. Mm -hmm. But even on like even even to call oneself an anti-imperialist to have a vulgarized sort of politics of that, I think, fails. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, it's one of these things where I have found it necessary to even say, look, socialism in a Marxist sense is not anti-imperialist. So there's a great quote by Lenin that I always like to trot out where he's like, you know, we're anti-imperialist, but we're also going to build socialism on the basis of imperialism. Right. Uh, in other words, the capitalist system that imperialism has produced is going to be the basis for socialism. Its finance uh, capital is going to unite all those sinews of of labor power production all over the world and create a truly global proletariat. Yeah. It does. And um, I mean, it does two things. It does that, but it also undermines it. Right. That's the other thing. It's a, it constitutes and disintegrates. But, you know, I go so far as to say socialism from a Marxist perspective is not anti-capitalist. Interesting. Right. Go on. Overcoming capitalism on the basis of capitalism. And it, then it matters what you mean by capitalism. If you think capitalism is like greedy individualism or, you know, the way I put it is capitalistism, right? It's not capitalistism, it's capitalism. Capitalistism, I'm guessing you mean like the direct rule of the, of the capitalist. Money bags. Money bags, yeah, yeah the monopoly man. It just is not that. In other words, if you if you think that, you know, I don't know, like all due deference to Bernie, that we're living under the rule of the billionaires, uh, if it were only that simple, if it were only that simple, only again, another Lenin quote, it's not like, thousand people, yeah. it's not like, you know, you have all the pro-capitalists lined up on one side and then, you know, all the anti-capitalists on the other side or something, you know. It's not as straightforward as that, um, you know, would that it were, but it isn't. And again, this kind of, and again, the 60s gives us a kind of mixture of counterculturalism. I think Daniel Bell, you know, who was like a former grad student assistant of the Frankfurt School when they were at Columbia University, called it antinomianism, right? And it's not just on the left, it's in the culture, you know, like that there's the new capitalist culture is that everybody's like a rebel. You know, everybody's rejecting the man, you know, and it's pretty empty, right? We've so built a whole uh, consumer and productive apparatus out of uh, fulfilling those various different. But, uh, you know, at the same desires. time in, in the 
part of the book you you quote Fanon mm-hmm. and his yep. uh, his uh, uh, assertion of of eros and the you know the mm-hmm. establishment of the you as like a I don't know uh, not a spectator but an actor in history um, and and you know you mentioned the utopian socialist before and Jefferson talking to them and I feel like there there is sort of getting back to what I was saying before about anarchism there is this kind of right. lineage in the revolutionary milieu that does have this perspective that's kind of outside of the right and left as we've been talking about it that that seeks to cre- mm-hmm. to act within our own lifetimes create some sort of free society even if it's you know a commune outside mm-hmm. or a commune in the city or something um so i i don't know it seems it seems like to me that you do have sort of sy- some sympathy with like the the history of autonomism broadly pers- oh sure yeah, yeah. I mean, I would put it this way. So, like, yeah, I mean, I'm not entirely unsympathetic with the counterculturalism and the antinomianism either, but just being alert to the fact that it's fed into capitalism now. And it's one thing to reject the realm of capitalist politics and the capitalist state. Um, it's another thing, see, it gets muddled when it gets into, like, a cultural realm. You know, and that's where I feel like, okay, so you mentioned, like, white ethnic working class from the suburbs. All right, let's go there, right? Are people rejecting the values of their parents because their parents got mortgages and sold out, got bought off, got co-opted into the system, got sold on the American dream, which is really the American nightmare? Is that the problem? No, please don't reject your parents' children. Please don't. But but we <laughs> but we have to because the suburbs suck. It's not be, it's not about the like city sucks too, man. I mean, yeah, the country fuck. sucks these days. But we have more. <laughs> you know? But in our twenties, we've had we had way more fun in the city than we would have in the mm. suburbs. Yeah, maybe. A certain you kind know? of fun, you know. <laughs> again, like you know, you're born on Long Island in 1980, as I was, and. The, the Long Island calls you right back always. It's like in the back of your mind there, like go back, go back to Nassau. County. I'm just saying like, that go I back knew- is a, you know, there's, that's materially driven, but so is all of the millennials moving to Brooklyn is materially driven because there's mm-hmm. jobs there and they're the kind of jobs we want to do and there's the kind of cultures that we want to have. And it's actually more, in some ways, is more affordable. Oh, yeah. Well, you- no, no, well, sure. Yeah, I mean, look, I moved to Chicago in my early 20s, straight out of college, it was affordable for me to do so. I participated in gentrification, basically. Right. In other words, it was affordable for a little while because they were using us to gentrify. Right. And it, it, it's a plan. The, you know, Mayor Daly had a plan. It was the Daly plan. It was like, how are we going to develop the city? We're going to bring a lot of students in. And they're going to rent in these like rundown neighborhoods, and that's how the neighborhoods are going to be developed. Mayor Daly's uh, muscle needed uh, Richard Florida's brain in order to make. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean you do need a thug to run Chicago. By the way, oh. the problem with the problem with Brandon Johnson and Lori Lightfoot. Lori Lightfoot wanted to be a thug. You know, she had the biggest dick in Chicago. Mm. Brandon Johnson does not want to be a thug. He, it's not going to work. Mm. It's not going to work. You need to be a thug for sure. I... And um, you know, so. I mean, but in, in all seriousness, you know, so I moved from New York. That's where I'm from. I'm from Long Island. And I moved to Wayne's World. Whoa. Oh, hell yeah. That was a touchstone <laughs> cultural moment right there for people my age. You moved because of the movie? You wanted to be like No, Wayne? no, no. Not at all, right? <laughs> Were you but more I a Wayne or a Garth? <laughs> I, yeah, I even, I even ended up living in the western suburbs for a little while. So I was literally in Wayne's World for about five years. Hell yeah. Um, you know, like near Naperville. And um, and I was like, okay, this is kind of different from Long Island, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, Long Island's pretty urban by comparison to the Midwestern uh, suburbs. Um, you know, so I had my taste of, like, anywhere, any town USA, you know, anywhere America, any town USA. You know, it, I mean, look, I know, right? The, the social atomization, the isolation, the spiritual soul crushing you know yes of course right and that was also true in relatively urbane suburbs long island where i was from um but 
I feel like that's in the city too. Like when we're talking about like the working class, the working class, the working class, you know, it's a soul crushing world, whether you're in the city or the suburbs, it's atomized, it's isolated. People spend all their time commuting and working and working more than one job. I mean, you know, I've had relationships, you know, with working class people, um, you know, uh, ultimately those are my like long-term relationships. Long-term love was with, working class people and you know so you know it doesn't matter where you are rural america suburbs city the working class lives kind of that way i i want to as we get to about like 55 minutes and we are going to do a bonus and it's i think it's going to be good we're going to continue this conversation and we're going to enter enter the coutron zone where we get uh, the Coutron treatment. We send him a couple of things that we wrote, and we're going to uh-huh. talk about them, get critiques and all that. Maybe uh-huh. one way to sort of end this conversation out and maybe to take the bait a little bit, because you saw my uh, brief potted history of left communism on uh, TIR, and it's right. obviously something that animates me and it's something you want to discuss. So maybe the way that we can use this to transition is... Um, getting back to um, socialism with American uh, characteristics, let's call it, (laughs) and touching upon the atomization and anime that both you and Andy were just describing, uh, not just in the suburbs, but also in the cities and all over the place. Now, it seems to me a plausible socialist project, one that would take a lot of work and a lot of effort and would really have to try to differentiate itself from both the capitalist left and the capitalist right, could Mm -hmm. be about rebuilding uh, the, the civil society that's been absolutely ravaged over the last 30 or 40 years, rebuilding a sort of um, Republican political spirit, at least, um, based on the principles, say, of that, but away from like the electoral sphere where it, it's just shadow play at this point in time. And maybe this is how the left com thing or councilism fits into it is I can imagine from my experience and, and from my reading, I can imagine a socialist movement that starts on the shop floor and starts in the streets and, and is organic and grassroots in the sense that it's trying to bring, it's trying to turn like a Gompersite freedom into yeah. more like a Debsian freedom. It's trying to uh-huh. like... Um, take like the the natural sort of fuck you spirit of Americans. This this sense that all the way back to Tocqueville, right? The American people yeah, yeah. are these sort of frontier, these yeah. ranging people. Try to isolate that uh, those forces and bring them together in a way that um, not only rebuilds civil society on those auspices, because it seems as though. Um, the the bourgeoisie has kind of left us all to rot and that Mm -hmm, politics mm -hmm. have just hollowed out and civil society has hollowed out to the point where maybe ironically it's going to have to be the fight for socialism that makes real and rebuilds the sort of real organic bourgeois civil society that you saw in the 19th and 20th century in this country. Mm -hmm, So I'm not mm -hmm, sure that's like a very fleshed out vision but it's kind of where I go reading your book but based on like understanding the, the councils, for example, as this like this democratic um, surge, mm-hmm. the, the, the Soviets as sort of like the um, collapsing uh, of the distinction between the economic and the political. Maybe in America that looks like, I don't know, like workers committees, like shop floor, com- floor committees for correspondence or something like that. I don't know. Sure, sure. I mean, OK, so, yeah, because I didn't answer your question about republicanism, hmm. small r republicanism, right? And the tricky part there, uh, uh, you know, about that is, on the one hand, you know, so it goes back to some Marxism versus anarchism, first international stuff, social action, political action, that the struggle for socialism requires both, and neither is adequate in and of itself, and they do actually contradict each other. So, you know, like in American political discourse, we have this stuff. And so capital R Republicans will say, we don't live in a democracy. We live in a constitutional republic. And we don't, we don't live in a democracy because it's not really the rule of people. It's the rule of law. Right. And I feel like that's cool. But also we live in a society where we want the law to touch as little as possible. Americans, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I, but I also think, you know, the socialist movement, and this is where anarchism, you know, does hold on to something in the era of the statification of socialism. 
by both social democrats and Stalinists, mm. right? The the anarchists become the you know memory of this. Um, that you know we want to get rid of politics, right? So politics is only necessary in capitalism to manage capitalism, and it's only necessary to make the revolution. Mm. But then it's supposed to wither away, you know, the withering away of the state, which means the withering away of politics and and the minimization of the rule of law, right? I mean, how much, how many of us, like, you know, are, you know, our everyday life is on the one hand governed by law, on the other hand, it's not governed by law. And a lot of capitalism is in this kind of gray zone of, like, what's legal, what's not quite legal, tolerated illegalities, you know, there's a huge black market economy, whether you're talking about, like, quote-unquote, illegal labor of immigrants, there's a huge, like, gray market economy, mm-hmm. and, you know, that's capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, capitalism couldn't exist without that. And, you know, so when we're talking about, like, republicanism, and that's why, like, I think that someone like Jefferson would sort of confuse people, because it's like, oh, you know, he's for, like, small government, and he's for, like, small property, like the yeoman farmer, kind of, which, not really, because the Democratic-Republican Party that Jefferson started to, you know, mount his insurrection, if you will. And he was prepared, by the way, to, like, have an insurrection if he wasn't put in office. Mm, very right? Trumpy. Like, yeah, very, right? So the, the election was closed in 1800, right? And he's like, you know, it's going to turn to the streets. And it was the urban working class. It was, right? Um, it wasn't yet the proletariat, right? So it is a very bourgeois notion. It's not like an industrial proletariat, you know, it's more like, you know, the artisanal crafts, you know, working class, but you know, it's the workshop people too, you know, a quasi like semi proletarianized um, element. But, you know, republicanism, meaning um, what do we need that for? You know, we need that for um, maybe the revolution, the dictatorship of the proletariat, but that's not like socialism. Mm. Right, uh, because modern republicanism, as opposed to ancient republicanism, modern republicanism is based on the idea that society really governs itself, and that the politicians should be doing as little as possible. The legislators should be doing as little as possible. The law should govern us as little as possible. Right, which is very different from like ancient republicanism. Um, and so there's potentially a lot of confusion there, you know, uh, and, you know, I always like to point to, you know, like Jacobinism. So you guys invoke Jacobinism. So there was, um, there was a labor historian, that's a euphemism, an old leftist, hmm. uh, William, <laughs> William Peltz, Bill Peltz, who was active in Chicago and he passed away, but I, I got a chance to encounter him. He wrote like a people's history of Europe. It was like his version of the people's history of the United States, like Howard's in. But it was much more political and much more Marxist and much more socialist. And he pointed out that the Jacobins, the Committee for Public Safety, the Jacobin Terror, was an attempt to actually limit the violence of the revolution because they didn't want a repeat of how violent the American Revolution had been. Mm. Because the American Revolution was actually far more violent. They didn't want a civil war or what appeared to be like the ranging of two armies. One well, they didn't want that, certainly, but they also didn't want the popular violence. Mm, so the popular law. violence, you know, the tarring and feathering, mm-hmm. people were killed, right? And not only that, but like Tories, like when, when groups of people went to go after the Tories, they killed the dude, his wife, his children, his servants, his slaves, like they killed them all, right? And so the Jacobins literally... Like, very literally, they looked at that experience and they're like, no, we only want to kill the guilty people, so we need to set up a, a trial. Of justice, <laughs> like, yeah. Right? We, we need to have, like, you know, a regular kind of system. But they also understood that they needed to do that, otherwise the people will take it into their own hands. Mm. Right? And that wasn't, like, against the people, but it's like, you know, they wanted, they wanted the, the, the popular revolution to be effective. You know, which, like, you know, random violence is not necessarily going to be particularly effective. And right? this is and one of the roles of the dictatorship of the proletariat. And and you're saying that there there is something, there is a sort of like, um, 
There's a way in which the dictatorship of the proletariat does not have to look like we imagine it looking, certainly at the last right. hundred years or so, right? right? But instead, the dictatorship of the proletariat could be more um, like a self-managed, self-organized, um, uh, what would you call, euthanization of, of the bourgeoisie and bourgeois social relations, where you don't have to bring uh, the state as we imagine it, but instead it would be like... Uh, it's got to be a social revolution. I mean, yeah. this is old Marxist language. It can't just be a political revolution. It's got to be a social revolution. And it only needs to be a political revolution insofar as that's necessary as a framework. Um, but you really want to minimize that as much as possible. Like, in other words, you don't want the state to get bigger as a function of the revolution. You want the state to be boiled down to its essential minimum. Bodies and of even, armed men. Right. And, you know, and the thing with violence also is, I always like to point out there's a difference between force and violence, political coercion. So violence tends to be a, a mark of failure, meaning, you know, you really, there's a difference between putting a gun to someone's head and pulling the trigger, right? Big difference, mm -hmm. big difference. And so, you know, you want to minimize violence as much as possible at, you know, at the same time, it is going to be like, you know, there's going to probably be some popular violence, probably. I mean, un unlikely that that won't happen. The question is what comes out of it. And, and, and also, yeah. I suppose, too, you're saying that uh, unlike maybe some of the fantasies, the uh, revolution cannot be simply popular violence. That it has. No, to it, yeah. it can't be. It's got to be more organized than that, especially like, look, if we're looking at the United States. Obviously, the struggle for socialism in the United States has a huge responsibility on its shoulders. And it, the struggle for socialism in the United States, including if we are able to establish a socialist party, is going to transform the world instantly. Mm. It's going to produce revolutions, civil wars, political destabilization and unrest in every country in the world immediately. Immediately. Like, immediately. In other words, the revolution in the United States is going to split the Communist Party in China. Mm. We're going to talk about this in the second half. <laughs> okay. Because it's going to be like, there's going to be half of the Communist Party of China that's like, we need to occupy the United States immediately to put down this revolution. And there's going to be the other half, no, we need to support the revolution. Mm. Wow, what a great way to queue up our second half. <laughs> uh, <laughs> folks, um, I hope you enjoyed the provocations. I thought they were very, very productive. I think if you haven't bought the book out from Sublation, you should purchase it. Even if you disagree with 90% of it, it still, I think, offers up a really good, shall we say, symptomatic portrayal of the millennial left, left and its uh, demise, and will give us all uh, a lot to talk about in the coming years. So, Hopefully to think about, yeah. And think about, yeah. So, Chris, thank you so much. I'm going to put in also in the show notes the... Uh, it's something I watched several times now. It's the presentation that Platypus did on YouTube of uh, American history, especially your oh, yes. take on Jefferson. Because I think that yep. if people are confused and they're like, Sally, they want to bring up Sally Hemings and they want to bring all the contradictions within Jeffersonian thought, it's a good place to go to, to continue the conversation. So, And also, if you're a listener and you're completely disgusted by this line of thought, Sean and I are going to start reading Settlers soon. And so... <laughs> Hopefully in the next couple of weeks, yes. we're going to start. I think maybe the first one will be uh, available to everyone, but we're going to have uh, us discussing settlers behind yeah, the paywall. We're so going to read it. And please, Can I just say, uh, yeah, go ahead. On that note, when I was in college, I was, you know, Spartacus Youth Club. Um, but Mim Notes, Maoist International uh, Movement yes. Notes, was there. Great and movie was, reviews from Mim. <laughs> and I was like, motherfuck, you know, so I immediately thought it's like the old Star Trek episode with William Shatner, where it's the Yangs versus the Combs mm. in a post-apocalyptic world. It's the Americans versus the Chinese. Mm. They're like tribes, like killing each other. And I was just like, you know, motherfucker, it's going to come down to Trotskyist versus Maoist, isn't it? Mm. At the end of time. <laughs> and so settlers, like, I cannot believe that you guys even know that it exists oh my god it's if i had if i had my wish 
you would not even know that it exists. <laughs> we, I we really pro- wish that you didn't have to go through this. We probably eighties. Like let's just say I got five pages in, and I had so many marginal notes that I had to create a different document. So Andy and I are going to give it the critique that it deserves. But we're also it's so popular now among like post. Yeah, read it for that, sure. I know, read it. It right? needs it needs uh, yeah. an, an honest hearing, if nothing else. So stay tuned for that, sure. folks. <laughs> Patreon.com slash the Antifada for uh, settlers and its opposite. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you on the other side.